day to be happy. I just wish we had Pharrell's song back then. <laughs> but let's be honest, the good times and the good vibes we get at Happy New Year time are short-lived, aren't they? We all know the difference between a sugar rush and true happiness. So is there such a thing as happiness that stays when even, as C.S. Lewis says, it feels like it's always winter and never Christmas? Is there such a thing as a happiness that can stay through the trials of life? The philosopher Aristotle thought there was. The happiness he talked about was not simply a fleeting feeling of pleasure, but a good, whole, or complete human life. And in his classic book, Ethics, he said that, the kind of, that that kind of happiness was the ultimate end and purpose of human existence. So happiness is a big deal. And I think Aristotle was touching on something that Scripture speaks a lot about. A true happiness that endures even through the times where it feels like it's always winter and never Christmas. So what is happiness? Uh, Pastor David Murray wrote a book named, uh, called The Happy Christian, and he defines happiness this way. He says, happiness is a God-centered, God-given sense of personal well-being that flows from a right relationship to God in Christ and flows out in worship of God and the service of others. If that's true happiness, I want it. I want it for me, and I want it for you this new year. But where on earth do we find that happiness? Today we'll see that scripture teaches much about this kind of happiness, and it also teaches that the three-person God of scripture is himself not only the source of all happiness, but actually the happy God himself. Scripture uses a few words to capture the idea of happiness. Words like joy, delight, pleasure, and the word that we're going to be focusing on today, blessed or blessed. In 1 Timothy 1.11, Scripture speaks of the gospel as the good news about the glorious, happy God. Listen to what this verse says, and Paul is speaking here, and he says he's been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed, that is, happy God. The good news is a message about a happy God, which means that God is not a growling ogre in the sky ready to slam heaven's door on anyone he sees smiling. He is the creator of happiness, and he exudes happiness to his creation. And if that's true, then we have something to write home about. Especially to our depressed, gloomy, and grim world. Paul continues, it gets better. He says in 1 Timothy 6.15, with the same word referring to Jesus, he says, Jesus who is the blessed that is happy and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, if we want to learn how to be happy, and we want to learn the way of happiness, we must follow Jesus, who is himself the happy Savior. He is 
is the model of that true happiness that Aristotle was talking on and touching on. He is the model of true happiness that all of us can watch and see how it's done. So, Jesus lived his life, and let's be honest, it didn't seem like he was going through a lot of comfortable, easy times, but Scripture says he was the happy one. And how did he keep his happiness through all the storms of life? The answer is this, and here is how you can guarantee a truly happy new year from the heart. Meditating on Scripture. This morning we'll see that meditating on Scripture is the way to true happiness. You don't believe me? Listen here. Isaiah 50 Verse 4 to 5 is speaking of the suffering servant who would come, that is Jesus, and listen to how it describes Jesus' life. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Every day, morning by morning, Jesus gave himself to inclining his ear to the word of God. And that is what kept him happy, even through the hard times. Jesus, the God-man, needed the word to personally minister to him while he was living in this word, before he went and spoke to others with that same word. And we're no different. We need a first-hand encounter with God each and every day in order to be happy personally and represent our happy God in the watching world. So Jesus flourished as a human because he did not rebel against God, which only leads to misery, the opposite of happiness, but he actually dedicated his whole life to hearing and speaking and meditating on God's word. He listened to the word to nourish himself, and spoke to sustain those who were exhausted with life. And if you came here today weighed down by life, know this. Jesus still speaks and meets with people through his word. If you've come to hear him today, he will sustain you and he will draw you into his happiness. Have you come to hear Jesus speak today? Have you come to meet with Jesus? I hope so. I know I have. Now for the rest of the morning, my plan is to slowly meditate on and hover over Psalm 1. We're going to do this together. And as we do, I want to remind you of something. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says this, All the promises of God find their yes in Him, that is, in Christ. So all the promises of this text in Psalm 1, which are delightful and sweet and juicy and delicious, all these promises are pointing us to Jesus. So as we meditate on this psalm, we need to connect the dots from this text to Jesus and back again. Jesus is both the one who fulfills this psalm and these promises, and he energizes his people to do the same. Now please stand with me as we read from Psalm 1 together. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes. Open the eyes of our heart, we pray. Open the ears of our heart so that we would have ears to hear and see once again the glory of your word and the glory of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 In Psalm 1, we see that meditating on Scripture is the way to true happiness. Meditating on Scripture is the way to true happiness. And this psalm starts by contrasting the two ways humanity chases after happiness. First, let's look at the way of the righteous. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The whole book of Psalms starts with that word blessed, or blessed. And by now we know the point, we get the point, that means happy. But not only is this verse showing us that there is really a way to true happiness, it also shows us that you will not drift into happiness. Why? Because there are traps set at every corner of life. And we see them immediately in verse 1 such as the three characters that we're introduced to. Look closer at verse 1. The wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer are there. These three people represent those who are estranged from God. And they are blind guides leading people astray and away from the true happiness we were created to enjoy. And watch how they do this. Look closer at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Notice those three words. Counsel, way, and seat. Counsel represents our thought life. What we're thinking about. Way represents our behavior. And seat represents the crowd that the ungodly person belongs to and associates with. The point here is that the godly, happy person doesn't belong to the rebel crowd. He doesn't pledge allegiance to their way of thinking or living. He knows that those he gives his ear to will shape his thinking, and therefore he does not learn from those who do not follow God. He will not give his ear to their instruction. Rather, the blessed man will decide for himself who he will follow. This text, as an aside, this text is not teaching 
that a godly person needs to stay inside the doors of a church and avoid all the bad guys at all costs. Since Jesus fulfills this psalm, all we have to do is cruise over to the Gospels for a few minutes and see that Jesus actually befriended and sat and ate with many sinners in his lifetime. So what's the point? The problem that verse 1 is driving at is that it's, it's not proximity to ungodly people. We have neighbors, we have family members, we have friends that don't follow Jesus. The problem here is the influence they have on our lives. We who follow Jesus will and must refuse to follow those who are not following God. This year my family and I have been reading through Proverbs at the table. One of the things I have appreciated this year as I've studied Proverbs is how Concrete pictures are presented in this book, and uh, you're constantly given contrasts of the righteous man and the wicked man um, with pictures that are just sometimes hilarious and sometimes very scary. You're given pictures, and they're contrasting the way of the fool and the way of the wise, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So not too long ago, my wife started a game called, Is It Wise or Is It Foolish? We have a theme song and everything for it. <laughs> so we'll read a few Proverbs, and we'll uh, talk about them for a minute, then we'll make some real-life scenarios up based on those uh, Proverbs reinforcing the teaching. And then we finish with the cliffhanger question, is it wise or is it foolish? So we might say to our kids, is it wise or is it foolish to obey your parents the first time? Answer? Wise, yes. Um, another question we might ask is, is it wise or is it foolish to put a coat on if it's snowing outside? It's wise. Wise. <laughs> if we were looking at Psalm 1, verse 1, we would ask our kids, is it wise or is it foolish to follow people who don't follow Jesus? So let me ask you, is it wise or is it foolish to follow people who don't follow Jesus. Who are you following? Is it wise or foolish to follow them? Where are they leading you? How are they leading you? Are they guiding you with this book or something else? The main difference between the blessed man from verse 1 and the three rebels in verse 1 is Scripture. There is no hint of God's Word in the life of the wicked. But listen for the contrast. What influences the man or woman of God? Scripture does. He inclines, or she inclines, his ear to something, and that's Scripture. Look at the way the truly happy person spends his or her day. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The word delight means to take pleasure in. The word meditate means to ponder something aloud. And what is the blessed person pondering and taking pleasure in? The law or the instruction of the Lord. 
This means that the happy Christian is preoccupied with thinking and speaking God's word, and God is personally instructing him through the process. And when is this happening? Day and night. But just a second, that does not just mean once in the morning and at night. It's a merism, which means it means all the time. This is how Jesus kept a happy heart through the ups and downs of life, and he had many. And this is how you can do the same. Constant absorption of Scripture. Always letting it bubble up and percolate through your heart. Letting the words of Scripture drip down and influence your internal conversations. And still your inner noise. That is what meditating on Scripture looks like. And that is the key to true happiness. Meditating and delighting in Scripture. It's the way also into authentic worship. It's the way into authentic, wholehearted prayer and singing. And this, I think, is important for us to grab a hold of. Why? Because we're prone to play act on Sunday. We come to church with smiles and our Bibles open. Then we close our Bibles for the week and we leave unchanged and as cold and sharp as ever. Well, meditating on Scripture is a heart practice, and it's a heart practice that the hypocrite knows nothing of. As we saw in Psalm 19, meditation begins with contemplating and appreciating the Word of God and the God of the Word, and then it leads to prayer and worship from an open heart before God. Do you delight in Scripture like that? Do you want to? I know I do. Do you want to this year? Do you want to be happy this year? Amen. I know I really do. Because I'm tired of being spiritually dull. I want to delight in His Word. But I fall short every day. I need Jesus. And you need Jesus. Now why is it that we don't meditate on Scripture if there's so much reward given to those who do? Here are some of the excuses I've heard over the years as a pastor. I don't have time. First of all, quit lying in church. <laughs> I know I'm young, but do I look that stupid? And don't answer that. <laughs> you mean to tell me that you have time to scroll through memes for hours, binge on Amazon Prime and Netflix for hours, Go to the gym every day, but you don't have time for God's Word? Quit lying. You don't have time for Scripture because you don't have time for God. Be honest. We have time for the things we make time for, don't we? We all have the same 24 hours a day. But if you got free tickets to the Raptors game, to a Raptors game, I'm pretty sure you'd make time to go. I'm pretty sure I would. But we're busy, busy, busy running around and our hearts are in chaos because we're running away from the God that we need to sit and rest with 
every moment we get. Why are you running? Now listen, I know exactly what that's like. Don't get it twisted. I didn't preach this text because I've perfected this. In fact, I preach this text because I need this. And I need this just as much as you need this. I'm a Christian, and I need God to renew my love for Christ every day, and renew my love for His Word every day. Even today. I remember back to a time where it was pretty precious to me, where I would wake up in the morning, I was a brand new Christian, maybe some of you remember this for yourselves, I'd wake up first thing in the morning, I would grab my Bible, grab my coffee, and I'd spend hours reading Scripture, highlighting and thinking and saying it and speaking it and journaling it, and I wouldn't put the book down until my heart was happy in Jesus again. I want that again. I need that again. I pray for that hunger again. For me and for you. It reminds me of the man George Mueller. Many of you know this name. He wrote these beautiful words many years ago. And let me just say them to you and encourage you to renew your love and desire for God's word through this quote. This is what George Mueller said highlighting the primary importance of God's Word, Scripture meditation. I saw more clearly than ever that the first and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. How I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. And how is this to be achieved? I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditate on it. What is the food of the inner man? Not prayer, but the Word of God. And not the simple reading of the Word of God, so that it only passes through our minds, just as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. Do you have time for that? If you want to be spiritually happy this year, it will require meditating on Scripture. And meditation will require effort. But the reward is great. Your soul will be happy in the Lord again. Do you have time for that? Why don't we meditate on Scripture day and night? Here's another excuse I've heard. There's only three, by the way. I already know what it says. I've actually heard this more times than I can count. And each time I hear it, I fear for the person's spiritual well-being. Seriously. Their know-it-allness shows that this person has no idea what a personal relationship with Jesus Christ really is. Listen to John Frame, who has been my, is my, currently my favorite theologian. I've been reading him uh, over the last few years. And the reason I appreciate John Frame so much is that he adds so much to the conversation because he's, he emphasizes that the Word of God is a personal Word. Meaning, God is personally present in His Word. 
So when we are delighting in His Word, meditating on His Scripture, we're actually spending time delighting in God's company. On the other hand, if we're ignoring our Bibles, we're ignoring the God of our Bible. It's His personal Word to us. Listen to what He says. Wherever the Word is, God is. God accompanies His Word to bring it to pass. So the Word is never an impersonal object or force. It is God drawing near to us. Recall Deuteronomy 30 and Romans 10. As we hear and read the Word, God speaks it to us. Your Bible is a personal Word from God. It is not an impersonal object or force. When we're dwelling on this book... Our whole being, our whole person is being dealt with by the living God. And when we refuse to open our Bible, we are choosing to gag God from instructing and speaking into our lives. And that is an immoral choice. Every time we open our Bibles, we need to take our cues from Jacob, in Genesis 32, who wrestled with God personally and wouldn't let go until God blessed him. Each time you meditate on a text, don't let it go until you met with God and he blesses you with his presence. Hold on to it, chew it, think it out until you have met with God and had an encounter with the living God. Scripture does not exist, friends, to give you more information and ammunition for the next Bible trivia game. Scripture is a living word meant to transform you by an encounter with the living God. You need to be transformed by this book, not merely informed by it. Why don't we meditate on Scripture day and night? Here's the last excuse we'll look at. And it's sneaky and subtle. This person says, I'm too busy studying Scripture. That sounds weird. For them, it's all about being right. It's all about accurate theology. This one's subtle. This person loves expository preaching. This person loves Bible study. There's nothing wrong with loving Bible study. But this person knows nothing about delighting in the Scripture and delighting in the Lord. It's all up here. It's all hard, cold facts. They have what I call the textbook problem. At Bible college, we had to fight against this problem because we were literally quizzed and did exams on the Scripture to understand what it says. Right? So, when people are familiar with Scripture... You're really familiar with Scripture, beware, there's a danger here, it's the textbook problem. Scripture can become a theology textbook for you, and you can become driven and religious about getting the right answers. And sadly, you can become a very good theologian that way, and that's why I'm concerned about this person. You know why? Because you can be a good theologian without being a Christian. Demons are great theologians. If you don't believe me, go read Mark chapter 5 and James 2. 
The demons have a good Christology. They know exactly who he is. They're too smart to be atheists. They know exactly who Jesus is. But according to Jonathan Edwards, the difference between a Christian's faith and a demon's faith is this. Saints delight in God. Demons gnash their teeth at Him. A real Christian delights in God and delights in the Word of God and that promotes a love in the heart, a joy in the heart that is real and honest. Listen again to Jonathan Edwards as he says, This is why God gives us preachers. God gives us preachers not that we might hear mere expositions on the Scripture, which do not stir the affections. And by the way, Jonathan Edwards was a brilliant man. Okay, He was not a simple man. He was a brilliant man. So for him to be saying this means something. God gives us preachers not that we might mere, hear mere expositions on the Scripture, which do not stir the affections. No, God has ordained preaching to affect sinners, to stir up the minds of the saints, quicken their affections by bringing the things of the gospel before them in their proper colors. And particularly God gives preachers to promote those two affections in the saints, love and joy. Come each Sunday, not just to get good theology and good exposition, Come each Sunday to have your affections quickened by the gospel and your heart filled with love for Christ and joy in Him. Now at this point we've seen that true happiness comes from delighting and meditating on Scripture day and night. And verse 3 says that the person who does this is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The person who delights and meditates on Scripture prospers, spiritually speaking. They have absorbed the nutrients of Scripture into their character and being, which enables them to stand firm through the storms of life. They may go through winter seasons, but they will produce fruit in the spring and summer because they've taken in Scripture day and night. They've been replenished by it. Now let's remember here that this Scripture is pointing to Jesus, right? Jesus fulfilled this Scripture. So if we look at his life, did he prosper like this text is talking about, spiritually speaking? Well, humanly speaking, if you look at his life, it seems hard to find him prospering, doesn't it? Wracked with troubles, trials, conflicts, all the time. Nowhere to lay his head. Homeless. But wait, if we look closer, he would yield fruit in its season, right? At the cross, when the storms of life were raging in, and it looked terribly grim for him, we see him prospering, don't we? How? Well, he's at his weakest moment, and what is he doing on the cross? What is he doing? How is he keeping himself happy when he's getting crucified on a tree? He's meditating. 
prospering, spiritually speaking. Pondering out, out loud at his final hour, he quotes Psalm 22 and he says in a prayer, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His whole life, Jesus was planted by the streams of the water of the Word. Every morning he woke up and gave his ear to absorbing and meditating on Scripture. And now at the cross, in his weakest moment, Jesus is being crucified on a tree. And ironically, he is the very tree of salvation being struck for the salvation of his people. He kept his heart happy through the agony by meditating on Scripture. He would prosper on the other side of his death at his resurrection. And I wonder if on the cross, what we don't have in the Gospels, I wonder if on the cross Jesus was also meditating on this verse in Isaiah 53, which is talking about the suffering servant. It says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper, same Hebrew word, in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. In all that Jesus did, he prospered, spiritually speaking. How did he prosper, spiritually speaking? Well, the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. What is the will of the Lord? Salvation. And how would salvation come? Through the substitute of the righteous, happy man, Jesus. At the cross, Jesus was providing the way of the righteous by offering himself up for sinners. Never once did he sin. He lived that perfect, happy life. But he did it in our place for us who are sinners. In our place, Jesus, the happy man, stood condemned so we could be accounted righteous in God's sight. Have you received salvation from Jesus? Have you settled that matter yet? Has his life, death, and resurrection become good news to you personally? You will only experience true happiness once you take this message to heart. And now our text reminds us of the sober reality that there are two ways to pursue happiness. There is the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Look at verse 4 and 5. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked are not spiritually prospering. They have no interest in God's word. Rather, like chaff, they are unrooted and blown away. Spiritually, they are wanderers. This is not saying ungodly people aren't made in the image of God with value. Of course, they are. But as far as their spiritual well-being is concerned, they are on a highway to hell. And unless they turn to Jesus and God intervenes in their life, they will come before God's judgment without a leg to stand on. And no one will be pleading their case. They will be exposed 
and naked and shown to be wicked and expelled from the happiness of God forever. It's sobering. We must remember that we live every moment under God's watch. And none of us will sidestep his judgment. Which way are you headed, friend? Which road are you on? Who are you following? How are they shaping your life and your thinking? Have you received God's approval and acceptance through Christ? That's so very important because how God thinks of you is more important than what anyone else thinks of you. Listen to C.S. Lewis as he underlines the severity of seeing God's face in the end, which we all will. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. All who are in Christ will receive the delight of God's face turning upon them. Have you come into Jesus yet? Those who are outside of Jesus will not receive the delight of God's face. So come to Jesus. Now is the day. Now is the time. Don't stay on the way of the wicked. Because the way of the wicked ends in a painful, just, and final judgment. And that's where we finish. Verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When verse 6 says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, it isn't referring to a general knowledge of them. Rather, it's referring to the intimate union between lovers, married lovers. I know my wife, and my wife knows me in a way that no one else here does. And that's the way it's supposed to be for married lovers. And that's not just because we have a marriage certificate, a marriage covenant saying that we are married, but that's because we have a living love relationship with one another. And that is what every Christian has with God in Christ. Listen to Augustine, the church father, as he talks about and prays this, about this relationship. There is a joy not given to those who do not love God. Sorry, there is a joy given to those who do not love you, but only to those who love you for your own sake. You yourself are their joy. Happiness is to replace, sorry, to rejoice in you and for you and because of you. That's quite a prayer. When God is our lover, we are truly happy people. But sadly, uh, we're reminded again of the final judgment at the end of this verse. 
Not everyone has entered into that love relationship, and not everyone will enjoy that bliss with God forever. This song began with the word blessed, happy, and now it ends with the word perish. What a contrast we're left to consider. For a big part of history, plays and poetry, like Shakespeare, had two categories. They would either be considered a comedy or a tragedy. They would be considered a comedy, the, the piece of art would be considered a comedy if it had a happy ending. And the piece of art would be considered a tragedy if it had a sad ending. The ending of the piece of art was what determined the meaning of the whole. Here in this beautiful poetic song, we come to the ending and it leaves the two ways open to you. And it's almost as though the song is now saying to every one of us who have heard it and everyone who reads it, you choose. You choose your way. Choose the way of the righteous and enjoy the comedy, the happy ending forever. Choose the way of the wicked and you will suffer the tragic dread of perishing forever. You choose. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Friend, why won't you choose the way of the righteous, happy Jesus? And enjoy the happy ending with the happy God forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we desire to know you personally in that love relationship. And I pray, Lord, that you would draw hearts to you today through your word. May people look to Jesus and see in him the beauty. And I pray, Lord, as we consider ourselves and our own hearts and our inclination away from your word, that you would warm our heart to reacquaint ourselves with you each day in your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.